You know, as I was preparing to come up here, I just realized if you made a New Year's resolution, the year's half over. <laughs> uh, it's the end of June, and uh, we are, as Pastor mentioned, right in the middle of this series called Get Real. And I'll, just, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, when you title a, a sermon series or you title a, a particular message, for me, that's a real struggle. But it really hit home last week as we were talking about getting real, talking about racism and prejudice, and this is real-world application, things that we're living right here in our community right now. And I believe this morning, this next passage in the book of James uh, fits right in with that. In fact, uh, you couldn't have orchestrated what's happened this morning any better through the lyrics of the song, through what Pastor shared, through the the encouragement to get involved. We're going to address a passage of Scripture in in the book of James that is summed up like this, faith without works is dead. And you may have heard that expression, but this passage of Scripture that we're going to cover in the second half of James chapter 2 is where the author addresses that. So we're going to dig in with that this morning. So if you did bring your Bibles, we're going to be in, in James chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 14 in just a moment. Um, we're going to look at putting our faith in action. And, and you may have already recognized that theme through a lot of things that have happened this morning. So I'm going to begin by reading verses 14 through 20, and we're going to talk about what James is saying, and then we're going to finish the chapter, and we're going to see some real-world application of how we can put our faith into action. It's going to yield things for the kingdom of God. So if you're there in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, he says this, what good is it Dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? What we're talking about, and if you're following along on, on you versions, there's some notes in there as well. Um, what we're talking about is having real, genuine faith in God and then backing it up with real actions or real deeds as we live it out in our community. A person who truly believes something will back it up by doing something with that belief. And it's easier to do as a follower of Christ if we get ourselves out of the way. And I don't know if you're familiar with this expression about dying to ourselves. And what that means is that we set aside all of our personal agenda and the things that we want, and we partner with God to get fully embraced in his will, and then we live that out in the community. If we've truly done that, if we've truly died to ourselves and put ourselves completely in God's hands, then it will be very easy then to do the things that he's calling us to do. Why is this important? It's important for a couple of reasons, but uh, this, faith that doesn't produce any actions. If you say you're a believer, you've put your faith in Christ, but you don't back it up with the way you behave and the way you act, it has no eternal value. 
The author here would say it's not even real faith. He points out that even the demons have faith or that they have belief in one God, but it's not really backed up. They don't do anything with that, and they tremble in fear. There's no eternal value in a faith that doesn't produce any real actions. The opposite side of this is that actions, good deeds, without real faith, well, that has no eternal value either. It, we'll see in a moment that it fails to meet the requirements for any real eternal reward. I mean, it's good to be good to your neighbor. It's good to be, uh, do volunteer things in your community. But without, without a faith in Christ, there's no lasting value in that. So both those two arguments, the, the faith without action and the action without faith, they yield the same fate, and that's ultimately separation from God. And so James makes an argument uh, in this, and he gives us an illustration uh, between two individuals. Verse 18 says this, now someone may, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. In that verse, if you leave it up for a moment, he uses this illustration of two individuals, people who have faith and people who have actions. People who have faith but don't really do anything with it or people who do good deeds but have no real faith. These two imaginary people. And this is the illustration that he begins with. And so I'm gonna talk at first about the person who has good deeds, that person who has good actions. So people of only actions. It could be that neighbor that does polite things. They help shovel your walk in the winter or they, they play with your kids when they see them in the yards. They're involved in the community. But people that don't really have a sense of faith, they put their trust completely in God and the concern is that generates a false sense of hope. People who, who feel like their good deeds have some long-lasting value, that's a false sense of hope. And perhaps they're trusting that somehow by doing good that will offset uh, things in their life that don't quite measure up. Perhaps God is knocking on their heart and they haven't recognized it yet. And so they're behaving in a good way and they're just not sure why. And uh, these people, you may run into them, they actually might have an attitude towards people in the church. They're saying, I'm out doing good in the community, you're hanging out in church, but you're not really doing anything. And they might uh, develop an attitude or become bitter. And, and to be honest, over the centuries, uh, through cultural Christianity, how we have it here in the United States anyway, there might be some merit to that argument. Or we get wrapped up in what we're doing, but we're not really engaging in our community. And as Pastor Melissa mentioned, with our vision as a church, we want to engage our community. We want to break that stereotype. But at the end of the day, their good deeds really don't have any eternal hope. And Jesus taught about this. Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, talking about the people who do things but don't really have that personal relationship with God. He says this, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. We did all of the good deeds. Verse 23, he says, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. The people who do the good things but don't have that genuine relationship with God uh, have this problem that uh, prohibits them from entering the eternal reward. 
We are ultimately saved by faith alone. Look at Ephesians 2.9 puts it so beautifully. He says, Paul says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. There's no value in just those works unless it's precluded by this faith in Christ. Really, the only reward for people who do that is the reward in that moment, that good feeling that I did something good. And it was recognized. People saw it. Jesus talked about the Pharisees. They had that same opinion. They would do things publicly for the public response, but there's no lasting reward associated with that. If it's not birthed out of salvation, there's no eternal value in it. Well, the other person he identified in this illustration, James did, is the people of only faith, but don't back it up with actions. And really, that generates as well a false sense of hope. These are people who proclaim that they know Christ or they've, they prayed a prayer in church on a Sunday. Perhaps they've even been baptized. But you'd be hard-pressed to identify anything different about their life since that moment, except for maybe the fact sometimes they get up on Sunday morning and go to church. Otherwise, their life has had no real change because of this experience with God. And we, we know that When we put our faith truly in God, we need to expect change is going to happen. Romans chapter 12 said, don't conform to the rest of the world, but be transformed, be changed. There's a renewing of the mind that needs to happen because of that. One of my favorite verses recently, and I love how it's put in the New Living Translation. I don't have this on the screen, but it's Philippians 1.11, and it's stated this way in the NLT. It said, says, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. Be filled with what salvation is producing in you. And then he goes on to explain what is it that salvation produces in us. He says, it's the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. Our character transforming to the image of Christ. He says, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. So without that change that happens because of the prayer, because of baptism, because of wanting to impact our community, without that change, we have this real false sense of hope. In fact, in in verse 17, James said, this kind of faith, where it's just a prayer that you prayed but produces nothing, he says it's dead and useless. And so this is the illustration that he, he paints with these two imaginary individuals. But then he goes on to to give another illustration between two very real individuals. So we'll go back to James chapter 2, picking up in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. He says this, Don't you remember our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So now we have this other case study, if you will, between these two individuals, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham had genuine faith that produced genuine actions. We know his faith is genuine. It's laid out in scriptures. 
Romans 4.3 says, For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. If you read through Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the people of great faith, there's a large portion of that chapter that's set aside to talk about Abraham. His faith is without, uh, without doubt. But he backed it up with genuine actions. In Genesis chapter 12, he packed up his family and moved to another country, not knowing where he was going, just following God's leading. And then the story in Genesis chapter 2, where he offered his son Isaac on the altar. This is, I, this is Abraham's faith backed up with genuine actions. And then likewise, we hear the story about Rahab as well. Rahab had genuine faith that produced genuine actions. See, this story back in, in the book of Joshua talks about the nation of Israel moving into the promised land. And uh, it's, it's a remarkable uh, history of what happened in those events. And Joshua, if you remember, was one of the original spies that went to look at the promised land. And he scoped it out to see if they should inhabit it. And there was a bad report that came back from some of his partners. And Israel spent 40 years then wandering in the wilderness. Well, now Joshua's back, and now he's leading the nation of Israel. And he does the same thing. He sends two spies, go and scope out Jericho before we go in and take that land. And these two spies end up in the city, and they stay at this inn that's run by this woman Rahab, a woman that has, frankly, a bad reputation, whether it was in, in her past or her current life, but she's managing this inn. She's got a poor reputation in the community, but they're staying there. And the officials in Jericho find out about it, and they send the soldiers to go get these spies. And Rahab makes a decision in that moment to hide the spies on the rooftop, and then tell the, the, the soldiers that they left town, and if you hurry, you can maybe go catch them. And they run away. And in that moment, before she goes to bed, she decides to go upstairs and have a conversation with the two spies. And we pick that up in Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And this is, this is a remarkable story, because we, we may know this story in general from kids' church or growing up, but how she describes the people of Jericho in that moment is, is, is pretty phenomenal. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did in Sihon and Og, the two, uh, what you did to them, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below." She is in that moment declaring this strong faith in knowing who the nation of Israel is, knowing who their God is. Israel missed it 40 years ago. Jericho was scared of them. And for 40 years, they've been frightful that one day Israel would come back, and now they have. And so Rahab has grown up in this environment where she's heard the stories about this nation that one day is going to come and decimate them. So she has that level of belief. She follows it up with genuine actions in the moment, making the decision to hide those spies. 
She's demonstrating her belief in who their God is and what he's about to do. Genuine faith that produces genuine actions. I want to talk very quickly about three things that these two individuals have in common and then give you some ways that you can respond and apply this to what we're doing today. And the first, the first commonality between Abraham and Rahab is, what, Rahab is this. They both responded quickly. They both responded quickly. If you go back and look at Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 22, God comes to him and makes this declaration that he is to sacrifice his son Isaac. He doesn't ultimately do it. God intervenes. It was uh, God doing a work in Abraham's life. But when God brings this idea to Abraham, scriptures say, the next day, Abraham packed up and headed out to do what God had called him to do. The next day. That type of quick response comes from a lifetime of being obedient to God. See, at this point in his life, Abraham is well over 100 years old, and he's demonstrated a life that continually follows and obeys what God is asking him to do. He backs it up with actions, and he does it quickly because he's been raised to do that. Likewise, Rahab, putting the spies on the roof was a last-minute decision to hide them She responded very quickly, but again, based out of a long history of knowing who their God was and who their nation was, she makes that moment then to put her faith in action, and she responds quickly in the moment. Two things that they have in common. So how do we respond more quickly in our lives? We've got to know the Word, and we've got to spend time listening. It isn't just about reading our Bible and saying, well, I read my chapter for the day and close it and set it aside. But take a few moments and say, God, what are you saying? And learning to listen to his voice and take those pieces of scripture that you've read and say, how do they apply to my life today? And when you know those words and you know how they're supposed to be applied, chances are you'll respond a lot quicker. We want to grow in wisdom when it comes to that. So by spending time in the word and spending time listening, we step out in wisdom. It isn't a reckless leap. Think about Joshua sending those two spies. He saw Jericho 40 years before. He knew at that moment God was sending them in to take the land. He's like, let's go get it. But he didn't get to make that final decision. So now 40 years later, is his moment, and he could have just jumped on us. I've been sitting on this for 40 years. Let's go do it. But he exercises wisdom. I know we're going to do it, but again, he sends two spies in. So we want to respond quickly. We don't want to respond recklessly. We grow in our wisdom and knowledge of God, so we're able to respond quickly when we're asked to do that. A great way to do that is through discipleship grow in how you're supposed to live out your faith. So the first thing they had in common is they both responded quickly. The second thing that these two individuals have in common is that they both risked much. When it comes to living our faith, putting our faith in action, sometimes we have to risk things. Abraham was going into uh, unknown territory when he moved to what is now the nation of Israel. He packed up, left his home country, all of his belongings, and headed out somewhere that he didn't know. There's a lot of risk with that, and I know from experience, I've moved across this country twice. Apparently, I didn't learn it the first time, but I'm grateful that we took that risk, that we stepped out in faith. Rahab, as well, perhaps, was putting much at risk between her reputation and then partnering with the enemies. Her very life could have been in jeopardy, but because she was responding in faith, responding in wisdom, Knowing who God is, putting her faith in action, uh, God did an incredible thing, but she risked much in that moment. 
When I think back about my life, the, the stories that my kids want to hear, Dad, tell me that story again. It wasn't a story about me sitting in my chair all evening. It was a story about when I had to step out and do something in, in the military or when we had to pack up our family and move, move across the country. Those are the, those are the things, the stories that generate excitement about who God is and what he's doing. And to be honest, we have to overcome a, an element of fear. We have to understand that there's a price to pay. We have to die to ourselves, and that's the first step, and then be willing to trust God as we step out with these risks. So they both responded quickly. They both risked much. And the third thing is they were both subject to the same stipulations. Let me put it this way. Who they were didn't change what was required of them. One of them was a very wealthy individual who owned lots of livestock and servants and and was just in this very prominent position, Abraham. Rahab was a, an innkeeper who had a bad reputation, but God still required the same things of both of them. They both had to go through some change. They both had to risk much. They both had to respond when God asked. It didn't matter what their situation was. It didn't matter whether they were male or female. God is asking the same thing of both of them. And I think he's asking the same thing of all of us here. So it doesn't matter whether you're the student or the professor or the mom or the child. God is asking the same thing of each and every one of us. When we put that faith in action, when we respond in faith and we do those good deeds, I think there's one more element that has to be associated with that is people need to know why we're doing it. Matthew 5.16 says this, In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Our faith in Christ propels us to do good things in our community, to our neighbors, to our friends, and ultimately they will praise God, but they can't end up praising God unless they know why we're doing it and we introduce them to our heavenly Father. We can't just do a good deed and hope that maybe they'll ask us if we're a Christian. So sometimes when we operate in faith and we do those good deeds, we might actually have to back that up with a testimony so they know why and who it is that we're serving. We're putting our faith in action and God ultimately will get all of the glory. That's one way that we can truly live out what James 2.18 says, I will show you my faith by my good deeds and ultimately then God gets glorified. So I wanna give you just a few ways that you can respond to this this morning, four ways and I will go through these quickly. But the first one is this, and this precludes anything that we do, is it has to be founded on a genuine faith in God. And what that means is we've got to not only believe God is who he says he is, but then we, we repent that the beginning of the change in our life and we trust God. So understand this, that the change, change is gonna be required. God loves us, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. That's why all these verses that I've referenced about change need to happen because he wants us to become who he wants us to be. Pastor Steve illustrated it beautifully when we were back in James chapter 1, verse 21, where he said, get rid of the filth in your life, that's the change, and accept the word of God and the belief, and accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for this has the power to save your souls. That's the kind of genuine faith we need. It's not just a, uh, I said a prayer when I was 12 and nothing has changed, but it's that, that faith, that change that happens. That is the genuine step of faith that needs to happen. And if you're here today and perhaps it hasn't been explained to you like that before, I know it wasn't 
explained like that to me growing up. If you're hearing that and say, well, how do I do that? It begins with a conversation between you and God, and it can begin right now in your seat where you just begin to recognize, you say, God, you know what? I'm not really who the Bible says I'm supposed to be. I'm not really following the leading of Jesus Christ. I recognize that there's stuff in my life that I need to turn away from so that I can become who you want me to be. And then you make that agreement with him. That's where your genuine faith starts. So you can, again, have that conversation, just start it right now, and in a few moments when the altar is open, you can come down and just spend some moments talking with God or find one of the pastors to to pray with you, or if if you came with a friend, they'd be happy to talk to you more about that. But it's gotta start with a genuine faith. The second thing, then, that will help us put our faith in action is we've simply got to be willing. Simply be willing to go beyond where you're at right now. Abraham and Rahab were both willing to do what God called them to do. We have to make a conscious decision, a real decision to say yes to God. I will do what you're asking. You know, uh, if you're blessed with a, a fantastic partner like I am, Jill has been just uh, fantastic in my life over the years. But early on in our marriage, she pointed out something that I did that uh, I probably shouldn't do. See, I would go up to people and I'd say, hey, will you do me a favor? And ask them to commit yes or no before I revealed what the favor was. And she said, Paul, you can't do that. Because <laughs> they might say yes, and then you ask them if you can have their car. And they're like, no. So don't put them on the spot before you reveal what the favor is. And in, in our relationships, I hope I've grown, and we should do that. I need to ask you a favor. This is what I'm asking, and then give them a chance to respond. But you see, God doesn't play that way. God is more like uh, the game of Jeopardy where the response is yes, and then we just wait for the question. So while that doesn't work with us, I do believe God wants us to be willing to say yes, and then he will begin to reveal the things that he's asking us to do. And sometimes that might cut into our personal time. It might require us to spend the night at the church with the the homeless who are staying here for out of the cold or volunteering at Kids Fest. But if we just say, God, I'm willing, show me. That's That's a great step towards putting our faith in action. The third way that we can respond is we start seeking. Start seeking for opportunities to put your faith in action because they present themselves on a regular basis. Here's a quiz. I don't know if you came prepared for a quiz, but how many remember the announcements that were made this morning? See, every Sunday, opportunities are presented for us to put our faith in action. And these are great first steps because this is the safest environment surrounded by other believers, but it will propel you to do bigger things in the future. Start seeking those opportunities. The same way that you come in on Sunday morning expecting a great worship service, great times of worship with our musicians and singers. Sometimes we come in expecting God to do a healing work or we expect to be challenged by God's word. We should come in expecting God to ask us to do something. Start seeking for those opportunities and then finally be ready to respond. Be ready to respond. You know, when a runner is getting ready to, to start a race, the first thing that they do, the, the starter will either say, runners to your marks, or runners ready. And the runner will get down in the starting blocks and get his feet where they're positioned to be and his hands right up against the starting line. And then when all the runners are ready, the race can begin. I believe we need to put ourselves in that position where we're in the blocks ready to go. And, you know, when I ran track in high school, the first time you're in those blocks, the first time you're in a meet, doesn't matter how many times you've practiced, but now there's other there's opponents there that you're running against, and you're in the blocks, and you don't know how long before the gun's going to go off, and there's this nervous anxiety the first time. 
And the second time, it's not as scary. And after you've done it a few times, you get in those blocks and you're ready. And you're like, I'm ready. I want to pull that trigger because I'm ready to go. And I think that's the type of ready that we need to be. Ready to go, ready to step out in our faith. Terrifying at first, but it gets so much more exciting as we step out. 